0: Gail Jackson has been a man that has invaded my life, just like Walt did. I didn't order him; he just showed up. And he—I'll tell you what he taught me. He taught me that the work of the ministry is never to be compartmentalized. The first time I ever heard it came from Gail, and he is a man that—that that lives it. Give a warm welcome to Gail Jackson, would you?
1: Thank you. It's uh. Very nice to be back with you again this year, as I was not with you last year, and a number of you knew that last year I was going into surgery for prostate cancer. And um, I really appreciate the prayers that I knew emanated from this seminar. I know a lot of you guys prayed, and I want to thank you very, very deeply for that. My wife and I both thank you. In my prayer manual is I have an email I sent out to the guys on the night before the (laughs) surgery, and I uh, found it about three or four months later I lost it and I found it about three or four months later. And it's one of those nice little things that God just lets you discover every now and then. I picked up and read it, and everything I ask, God answered. And I'm a completely healed guy, and I thank you very, very much for that. Now, some of you have asked me about the treatment, and I don't want to go into my lengthy discussion on prostate cancer. I'm not sure it's appropriate here. But I would like to note a couple of things, and one of them is that they, one way they do treat you is they treat you with a female hormone, they do that to inhibit the testosterone, which is one of the major things that aggravates your cancer. So they shoot you full of female hormones. And uh, the doctor gave me the shot because we were not going to do the surgery for a couple of months. Uh, about a week later, I was at my office working very early one morning, and I broke into a cold sweat. I did not understand why, and about within a minute I said, the heat must have gone on or something. A minute, it was gone. Later on in the day, about... Uh, but three or four hours later, I broke into it and went on all day. And I went home and I asked my wife about it, and she said, "Praise God, you know what menopause is now, <laughs> and you understand the hot flash." So I went to my doctor and I said, um, "I'm having these symptoms," and he said, "Yeah, that's what you're doing. You're flashing." And he says, "Are you having any other symptoms?" And I said, "Only the enormous urge to go shopping at 3 p.m. in the afternoon." There's <laughs> only two things that are out there. It's, it's interesting following Walt Hendrickson in his talks. And Walt, I appreciate you and the chance to follow you. Because, mainly, is because you're one of the few speakers that I could follow and they would consider my subject suffering an encouraging subject after yours. <laughs> it's really not bad following Walt. You, just, you can almost speak on anything. I'm going to speak to you on suffering. Not that I'm an expert on it, but over the last uh, year or so, or let's not go through the number of years, uh, I have uh, engaged with God on a number of trials and struggles in my life that have occurred in different ways, deaths, business issues, children in trauma, etc. And so I begin to really search the scriptures out to understand what was going on, because I was really wondering, stand, trying to understand, God, what do you have on your mind? What's, what's going on? What is Gail to extract out of this? And what am I, how should I respond to these pressures? And that is what I would like to talk to you about today. The, the scripture that I really came to, that was important to me, and I'm going to move around some, is that I really found, as I begin to explore Exodus, the first 26 months, which takes the Israelites out of Egypt around to Kadesh Barnea. I begin to really see God work in their life and begin to prepare them for the great opportunity of the promised land. I begin to study it and try to understand what is I'm to learn from that. And so what I want to talk about, this is a talk that I gave uh, two or three months ago, and it's about a four-hour talk, and I just distilled some things out for our interest today. Now, I want to talk on a study of what God's part was in the journey in the Exodus. Okay, next chart. So we're going to look at God and the journey. Let's go. This is a map of what it looked like when they went out. Considering this the land and this the body of waters, they started at Ramesses, went down through Succoth, They came out of the area of Memphis and they began to move. The Bible tells us it's about two and a half million people, 600,000 warriors. Let me extrapolate four people to a warrior. You're going to have about two million to two million and a half people trying to make their way across into the promised land. The Bible clearly states that there is an easier path to get there. And, as a matter of fact, archaeologically speaking, they know that path also. It's still evident where that path is. And it's a shot across the Mediterranean into the Promised Land. And it was called the Way of the Philistines. But God says clearly in the Bible, I don't want them to go that way. Because when they go that way, they will engage into wars. And when they engage into wars, I think they'll become discouraged. And they'll become discouraged and they'll retreat back into Egypt. And I want to prepare them for the opportunity to live in the promised land. So I'm going to take them a different way. As a matter of fact, when they're still sitting over here in Ramesses and Sukkoth, I'm going to give them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to take them out. And he said to them basically, look, you don't have to make any decisions. I'm going to tell you when you go and when you don't go and when you stop and when you move. It's not going to be any great navigational strategy. I'm going to take you to the promised land. So when you wake up in the morning and the cloud is moving, get it up and get after it and start walking out behind that flag, cloud. When that cloud stops, you can stop. And sometimes we may walk at night because it's a little bit cooler. So I'm going to flash up the pillar of fire by day, and what you guys do is get up, stand, get your tents, and get going. But don't worry about any of the navigation because I'm going to handle it. I, God, will take you over to the promised land. This journey lasts about 26 months until they get the Kadesh party in of the entire endeavor of Moses. This is the great time that we talk about. And we'll go through that. So, they get ready to leave Memphis. They get ready to leave Sukkoth and head out, and just as they exit, it notes that Moses picks up Joe's body. Oh, Joseph, body been laying around there for 500 years and he's promised made him promise, when you leave get my body and take it with you. So, it's the great concept of hope that Joseph had, which is picked up in Hebrews 11, we're studying, but Moses fulfills joseph's will wishes to get him to the promised land so they come up and as we all know they went right to the red sea and they come into a great cul-de-sac and they get trapped in this cul-de-sac and they went there because the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night led them there god took them right up into a cul-de-sac now after they left our boy pharaoh gets a little bit agitated and pharaoh says i'm going to take that group back over again And I'm going to race down there and conquer them. So he gets his chariots, and he starts running across here to come up to them. And they realize they're coming, and they can't move, because God, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, has put them in a foxhole, put them right up in a cul-de-sac. And so as they start coming up, we remember the story. The pillar of fire comes out and stops them right there. God splits the Red Sea as Moses lifts his arms. They go across the Red Sea. Pharaoh runs up and tries to go across the Red Sea. And he, gets, and he perishes. And the people sing great songs to the great God we have. Because this God has rescued us from this problem that he put me in. So on the other side, and so we know that God understood the people. He understood what their needs were. Next slide. No, so he starts to move down along the sea line here. And though this may not be perfect geography, you can uh, give me the latitude to do that. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night led them. And about the third day out, guess what happened? They got thirsty. Now, that's, that's not a showstopper. We could guess that. They're in the desert. <laughs> and they can only carry so much water. And under God's leadership, they get themselves into trouble again. So they come to this oasis, which they were expecting to have water. And the water is bitter, if we remember our story. Everybody remember the story? And they can't drink the water so god instructs moses to go cut this particular tree down he designates the tree moses cuts it down throws it in the water and they drink and in the next verse and in the next verse one more time and in the next verse the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night led them to 12 wells and 70 palms with beautiful clean water and i said to myself god i have a question what is that gail why didn't you just lead them to the 12 wells and the 70 palms why didn't you just tell them it was just down the road why did you get them into this crisis that they had to cry out to you saying why are you you making me so thirsty and God said to Gail that's a good question but I'm not going to answer you so I want you to understand that they got themselves into trouble because God led them into trouble it wasn't any bad judgment on Moses' parts it wasn't any sin in the camp It was, they took him right down and got him into trouble. Now, it's interesting that God says, i got a lesson for you. If you learn to listen to my commandments, and you obey my commandments, you'll never have the diseases of those guys in Egypt. Now, it was interesting to me. I wanted to say to God, what are the commandments that you have? You did not given him any commandments yet, other than follow the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But that's what he told them. And so they go down to the 12 wells and 70 palms, and it's pretty evident that they kind of sit around for a spell, about 30 days. And there seems to be a rhythm in the way God works with them. He he stressed the people, then he solved the problem, they relaxed. And then he would stress the people, then they would solve the problem, they would relax. And so they sat around here for a few days, and they took them to the next test. Next one. That was test number three. The pillar of coward by day and the pillar of fire by night continues to lead them. And they now leave the oasis, and they go down the road a little bit, and guess what? They become hungry. 45 days out, this is what the Bible tells us, 45 days out, from starting over here, they run out of food. Now that's not a stunner. You ought to figure that one out. They're just so long you can keep dry meat and unleavened bread around. And there's so much you could just store up. So they ran out of food. And they got hungry. And they cried out to God and said, why did you take us into the desert that we should die? Why did you lead us into this problem? And God said, understand the problem. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you manna and quail. Manna in the morning, quail in the evening. You're going to eat the king's meal. And I'm going to feed you guys like you've never been fed. Every day you wake up, you go out, the manna's going to be on the ground. Do you know what the word manna means? What is it? They went out and looked at what they said, and they said, what is it? And that's what it was named from then on, manna. And so they ate that, and they ate the manna Until they went the full 40-year route, came back around, and went into the promised land. God kept dishing a man out to them. And apparently also the quail, though it's not talked about a lot in the Bible. But I want you to understand that the pillar of coward by day and the pillar of fire by night led them into the problem. It was not bad judgment. It was not sin on their camp. It was not anything they had done wrong. God created the problem and put them in it. God solved the problem. Are we together? Now, he told them, obey. I'm going to give you one command, he says. It's not going to be really tricky. Here's the command. Take a single portion every day, excepting on the sixth day, and take a double portion. Now, this is not complicated, but, of course, they disobeyed it. It's really interesting just how we deal with the commands of God. They're not highly complicated, but we will choose time and time again to disobey them and ask him, why in the world are you ticked off, God? So, they're out here 45 days and the pillar of cloud by day, and the pillar of fire begins to move again, so they go to the fourth test. In the fourth test, they get thirsty again. They run out of water. Once again, this is not a surprise. This time they don't have an oasis. Moses strikes the rock. The water comes from the rock. And God is showing them that even in the issue where you have so many physical needs, I'm going to show you a great spiritual solution because this is the rock that is used later, to the, the, fourth, the uh, prophecy of Jesus' coming. And so he even starts teaching them spiritual lessons in the process of answering their needs. And he gives them a future to a coming hope. And remember, they got there because the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night took them there. Next one. And so they go further and they, for some reason, curl back up. And I don't understand why that. I'm not even sure my map is accurate, but that's what the map showed. And they find the Amalekites. Now they're out about 60 days now. That's all they are. Sixty days earlier, they were slaves that only knew how to make bricks and gripe. That's the only two talents they had. They had no understanding of war. They had no generals. They had nothing. They had no weapons. They probably had some mud clods they could throw. Have you ever figured out how in the world they fought this war? I have no idea how they fought this war, but they get it on with the Amalekites out here. Now remember, they got into trouble because God, by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar by fire by night, took them into that problem and intersected the Amalekites and had the battle. And they won. And if you remember the battle, they won because Moses held his hands up. You remember they helped holding his hands up. And the miracle of God came on and God said, this group is in deep trouble and I'll blot them from the earth and he did later on. But I want you to know they got there not because of bad judgment, not because of sin in the camp, but because God took them into the problem and he solved it. Do you hear me? Is everybody hearing that? So the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night gets to start moving, and they come to the sixth test. In the sixth test, they come to Sinai, and there is no way I can do justice at Sinai because it's a lengthy discussion. I only want to take one event at Sinai. I don't want to talk about Moses and the miracles and stuff. Excuse me, and the tablets. I want to talk about the time God called Israel To come to the mountain to be with him. Do you remember the occasion? And he asked them, you can come on up the mountain and be with me. And the people turned him down. Because the people were afraid of him. And I thought to myself, God desires me to have fear for him. Why is this upsetting God that they feared him? And it dawned on me why it was. Because they feared him for the wrong reasons. They feared him because they were afraid that he would hurt them and not help them. Are we together, guys? And I want to tell you, in my life, one of the great problems I have periodically with God and trusting him, is I come to the precipice of a suffering or a struggle, is my fear is, I know you promised goodness, but can I trust you or are you going to hurt me? And they chose, they believed that he would hurt them. Now what's interesting about this to me, is they were not afraid to break the commandments and be accountable to him, but they were afraid that he would capriciously hurt them. They were not afraid to turn against him and form an idol at the same place and spit in his eye, but they were afraid to accept his invitation to come and be intimate with him. Boy, and I've got to tell you, that's made me stop and think. They got into this issue because God invited them into the issue, and they turned him down. They got there because the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night took them there. Next, So we get to the seventh test. So they leave in some 26 months from the starting point. They're in the 90th day down here, so they must stay here about a year. It's a long episode down at Sinai. So they scoot up the mountain here go to 26 months, and they come to Kadesh Barnea. I've never walked on that land, but I understand it's kind of a plateau and you can see down into the Promised Land. And Kadesh Barnea, if you remember your history, is when they sent out the spies. And the minority came back that we can't go there because they can beat us, etc. And so God brought them to a test. And for the first time, he did not put them in the problems. He did not put them in the problem. He said, there's the promised land I promised you for 500 years. Go take it. And they could not trust the God that had proved himself so faithful all the time. And they walked away. And it cost the generation their opportunity to have the promised land. But they got there because the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night took them there. Are we together? Therefore, let me draw some conclusions about suffering in general. Next chart. I'm concluded as I've studied the scriptures, Job and the Exodus, etc., that I rest with the confident assurance that God is the author of all my suffering. He authors every bit of it. He takes me into the pits. It is by design and it's with forethought that he does that. Next chart. If we do not agree with this then, if we don't agree with this, if we don't agree with this this situation, then I have found that we will always be exploring the whys of a struggle or a suffering and miss the teaching from God. If we don't give God the credit for my suffering, then I'll spend all my time trying to understand why I'm going through it. And I'll miss what he's trying to teach me. I'll miss the lesson he was simply trying to get across to me. If I don't believe this, I will believe Satan is in control and God is impotent. That God's sitting around wringing his hands because something's happening to his servant Gail. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean that to happen. It just got out of control. It was a little experiment. It just went wild. No, In no place does God give Satan the credit for the suffering of an individual. I'm not saying Satan does not participate in the process. But God always accepts the responsibility for that. Third, if you don't believe it, then you'll think of ourselves as abused by fate. And that the gods are against us. And we'll call ourselves victims. That's the generation you're living in today. If we do not embrace these truths, when struggles come, we will be totally disoriented in the height of the suffering. We'll lose it. We'll continue to try to fix it different ways. We'll miss the teachings of God as they go in front of us. We'll miss understanding the goodness of God. Questions, concerns, or comments? Yes, Walter.
2: can I conclude from A that when I go through a struggle or a time of testing or tribulation in my life that there is a lesson that if I listen carefully I will get?
1: Walter, I do not see a promise in the Bible that says I will always be able to discern the lesson but I do believe I'll gain a new heightened intimacy with God in the process okay is that good enough? I have found that numerous times there are lessons, but I may not conclude them until months later. And I must also say, I may not be really interpreting what God is saying. He's silent on that. But I do say that He uses suffering to teach us lessons. Any comment? Pick up the mic, please, my Walter. Please do it the right way.
2: You know I would never do it any other way. <laughs> Well, I guess that my comment would be that, you and know, I have known each other for many, many years, and that the uh, most perplexing, difficult, trying time through which God brought me, I got no lessons, I uh, haven't the foggiest idea why God did it. Yes, but I- So I was wondering if it's because I was uh, preoccupied with other things, was there something I should have gotten, or is that normal? Okay. To make two comments, I do also know what you're talking
1: about and when you went through that. But I, seen, I sensed in my relationship during that time that you had a heightened intimacy with God and understanding and, and seeing the goodness of God in your life and answering some very complex questions that were not academic anymore. They were real. Secondly, as I look at the Job experience, when Job faces God at the end, God never takes, takes a moment to explain to him why he did what he did. He just sees no reason to do that. And I'm sure when Job left that experience, he came across, he he concluded 81 things that he learned from the, from the suffering. But God never took time to explain it to him. But I do believe that that struggle will bring you closer to God. If seen it in the right light. Any more questions? Walt? Yes, sir.
0: I understand... Uh... Coming from, but the question I have is you go through a bunch of examples here, and you know the people didn't sin, and God led them into the problem, and then God solves the problem, and maybe it was just a an object lesson in this particular series of instances in the Bible, but I happen to know that I do sin, so it seems to me you know, maybe you just said this, I didn't catch it, but it seems to me I should be at least making at least one pass as to whether our The cause for my current predicament is something that was sinful before I go on and embrace this 100%, because otherwise I'm being a fool.
1: I agree with you. And I understand what you're saying. Maybe my sin, uh, maybe I am reaping the harvest for my sin. Now what i found in my life, and maybe you guys agree with me or disagree with me, I have committed sin in my life that I never tasted the harvest from. God has chosen in His grace not to make me harvest that sin. And if I went around the room, I think I would find the same thing true in each one of your lives. There's things that you've gone to the well and shouldn't have gone there. You did things you knew was wrong. You knew God should have handed you your head. And he chose in his grace not to make you reap that harvest. Now, I say to you that if God can choose not to make me reap the harvest, God is the one that chooses to make me reap the harvest. And so he's accountable either way. He's the one that tells me how that's going to be played. Yes, sir. Is that okay? Yeah, Chuck. That's all I'm trying no. to
0: do. <laughs> Gail, on item B there, I mean, I, I would agree with you that, that that's uh, probably true, if we don't believe it, but w- would, would you say that sometimes Satan does things to us and it's God's permissive will versus his causative will?
1: I I really believe, Chuck, in the first session, that was discussed a great deal. Let me just sum up the conclusion. That permissive will is, uh, is trying to explain to us and trying to get us around having God culpable for my problems. We're trying to find ways away from that. It's hard for me to believe that God who loves me would actually take me down and make me go through some of these things. But I don't. If we don't go there, then the alternatives absolutely are frightening. Now, when, the only couple of illustrations I can think of the Bible, and the one most graphic is Job. Satan only moved when God said, "Sick him." And when Job comes back, when Satan comes back to visit God, God said he took full responsibility for everything that went on. He gave Satan no credit. He took. He said, "I did it." He took full credit for the issue. And I think I'd rather have a loving, caring God in control of my suffering than Satan. And I believe that God gives us that assurance in all the illustrations and the teachings I see in the scriptures. Any other questions? Jonathan, yes.
0: Let me just uh, clarify. So with, with our sin... Because God can control whether or not we experience the temporal consequences of that sin, that makes Him the author of whatever struggle we experience as a result of that sin. Is that what you're saying? Yes. If, okay.
1: if, if I have a sin and He chooses not to make me pay the fiddler, and if I have a sin and He makes me choose the fiddler, then who is the one bringing the suffering down on me? God. That doesn't mean that I, there's a causation in the sin. But I cannot draw, Jonathan, in my life a cause and effect on what's going on in my life to a sin. I know certain sins. I just have not had to pay the fiddler. God chose not to make me pay them. Yes, Chuck. Just, just Only a one quick, question in session, Chuck. No. Oh, okay. This Go ahead.
0: is a follow-up. This is part B of my question. Oh, okay. No, I, then what is Satan's role in all this? I mean, is Satan out there doing? A things dutiful to servant of God. Oh no! Really? Yes. <laughs>
1: Yes, sir. Is this part B?
0: Part B. (laughs) I mean, in my mind, this all makes perfect sense. It goes sort of in lockstep with what I was hearing Bob Foster suggest yesterday evening, and that is, since God is truly loving, he's only interested in the long haul, which is what what my eternal soul is going to be ending up doing. He doesn't give a hoot about this temporal stuff. This is like just the anteroom. This is spring
1: training. Right.
0: Okay. Thanks.
1: This is spring training, and in the few days I've played in my lackluster athletic career, I never enjoyed spring training. Next chart. But if we do agree with this truth, then biblically, the word biblical rest, does everybody understand what biblical rest is? We're going to go into it in the next set of charts. Excluding the Gowan family and their Bible study, we can exclude them totally out of the deal. I'm not interested in you, Lon. Be quiet. We rest in the truth that God is in control and has my best interest at heart. In the deepest pits that Walt went through, and the deepest pits I've gone through, which is not measuring what he went through, as I have friends that are suffering cancer and dying, as I have people that have gone bankrupt, the ultimate truth they hold on to is that God is in control and has my best interest at heart. And he's the one that brought me here, and he is the one that will determine how it works out. And if we lose that and we discount God's goodness, then we have only one alternative left. And that is fight like mad and manipulate the circumstance so I don't get wounded. And the minute I get into that kind of position, then you all my commands become negotiable. Because winning becomes the issue. Because God made me to be totally committed to my best interest. He made me that way. And he said to me, self-interest is okay. That's not a sin. And we can focus then, if this is true, we can focus on doing the best we know how and leave all the results to God. So all I'm accountable for is how I play the game, not what the score pad is at the end of the evening. And that's what Walt was saying to you today. Performance in the sense of results are not the issue. It's the quality of what you do and why you do it. Questions or concerns? Come on, with your cheeks puffed and Are you just wanting to say something so bad?
0: I'm overwhelmed by the
1: wisdom. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't get that on the mic.
0: Let's
1: do it again. Okay. <laughs> Any questions? We have a loving, caring God which will put you into pain to prepare you for an eternity to enjoy his greatness. With a pillar of fire by day at night and a pillar of cloud by night, he's going to take you into the pits.